Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. A filmmaker builds on her body of work in Europe and America, helps women's voices, focuses on inclusivity, trains other filmmakers who become rivals, helps develop new technology, and owns a studio, and survives a pandemic. Alice Guy Blachet's story is thoroughly modern, but it takes place 100 years ago. In search of a role model, filmmaker Christina Kotler stumbled on Alice's forgotten story and went down a rabbit hole of research to the point where she spearheaded a movement to get a proper marker on Alice's grave. Today, we talk about the importance of remembering our filmmaker roots and passing on what we know, and persisting no matter what. You know, I've been podcasting for 15 years. Oh, that's amazing. I've been, and this is my first time that I'm going to be a guest. Yeah. All right. So we want to talk about Alice Guy Blaget. And I said Alice, but I did say Guy Blaget, right? But that's okay, because I'm going to refer to her as Alice anyway from now, because she was in America, and uh, she became Alice, I believe. Have you seen the film, the documentary, Be Natural? Be Natural. Drea mentioned it when I did the teaser. She's like, oh, you've got to see the documentary before. I didn't, and I realized I've heard of it before, and I think probably from you. The uh, director, Pamela Green, had a show, one of her one of her movies in the Garden State Film Festival, and we were doing a symposium on Alice. And I think she came to see the symposium. I think she sent, saw the documentary, Lost Garden, and she fell into the same rabbit hole that I did, uh, which was back in 2005. First of all, you're in New Jersey. Is that where you grew up? Yes. Okay. Yes. Born and raised, I'm a real Jersey girl. And that was one of the reasons what intrigued me about finding this person, Alice Guy and now we'll call her Alice from now on. But she lived in New Jersey and worked in New Jersey, but she was from France. And then as I fell into this rabbit hole, going to a nephew's christening in Suffern, New York, and taking a little break, a little walk, I, I came upon Lafayette Theater, which is this old vaudeville theater. It has, it is haunted and it's still there, but they had a festival. They had a festival going on, contacted them. It was the Fort Lee Film Commission and they introduced me to Alice. And, and I, that was it. I just, I was so, so engrossed and mesmerized by the story of how this woman came from France didn't know the language, but in at that time in 1908 and 1910, most of uh, Fort Lee had a lot of French-speaking people oh. because the French had come over and really were were bringing in their uh, their cinema that they have discovered that they have developed in France to the point where it was sound synchronized, it was colorized, and it was shown on a big screen. It was because already colorized? The, it was colorized. Yeah, oh my she God. did colorization, hand colorization, synchron, sound synchronized. They had different stages for doing first shooting the film and then doing the recording and then matching it all up. I can't imagine doing that on wow. film. 
And at no. the time, there they had different types of films that they were trying to create standards for right. so that then they could be uh, worldwide. But the French were coming in. They had 35% of the business here in the United States. So it was, you know, it was a way to come in and do business here. And she was a techno chick. She learned the technology. In those days, women only had three things that they can do. They could be a wife. They could be a secretary, a typist, or they could be a nun. I think that was in France mostly. But she chose to be a secretary, typist, to have those, um, uh, those talents. And she was able to work on her own and, she, and be independent, supported her mother. Uh, there's a lot of story about Alice in the documentary, I'm sure. It's in the books. I have read almost everything about her. I met so many people who've done those that history after she wrote her own autobiography, her memoir, and it was translated into English in about 1970s, early 1970s. Oh, wow. Well, let's talk for a second about the the, the documentary because I oh, yes. think people, so it's called Be Natural, right? Be Natural. Odd, right? I mean, wouldn't it be like the first woman film director? Right. Or yeah. Be Natural was the way she asked her actors who at the time were stage actors, oh. theater actors, who they were Shakespeare, they were right. just pronounced. And she asked them to be, act naturally, be natural. And she had right. this line that said, be natural, act naturally. And she helped them uh, become more of the acting that we see now uh, at this time. And she started that. She also uh, shot the first narrative because at the time they were doing all documentaries, they were just shooting people walking out of the factories. Right, the, the train. Yeah. Right, everybody knows the story. But then when she starts um, doing the stories that perhaps she knew as a child, uh, her father was a bookseller, so she read a lot of books. She, she was into, and she, did, she had a, a very strict upbringing in a Catholic convent from the age of five until she she was able to get out of that, I think 16 or 17 and be able to go into her way into the world. So she was very, she was very um, disciplined. Mm. Uh, she was, and she still had all those stories and she put those stories together. That first one about the cabbage fairy, she never stopped. The cabbage fairy? Of, the Cabbage Fairy. It was Tell me a, about the Cabbage Fairy. Oh, it's the story of uh, a couple who went shopping for a baby, and they went to the Cabbage Patch, and the Cabbage. Yes, you do. And the Cabbage Fairy came up with these little babies, and he, she had little newborn babies from her crew. Would oh my God. Them, And they would <laughs> put them on the stage, and they would film them. Uh, so everything was was very much natural off the cuff uh, she she did things that uh, no one else was really trying other than just setting up the camera and i think that's something that i really love about her is about the technology at that time in the in the 19th end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century electricity number one changed people's lives but the other technology for photography and uh, well, of course, we see the 
the way the trains took off and everything that started just kept burgeoning on and getting bigger and bigger, but not everybody knew how to use this technology. Mm -hmm. So she was learning it, all the photography elements, because that's what her boss was doing. He was inventing these things. And the French have a way of being able to share their uh, ideas and their inventions at the time. So somebody else would build on it and they would share it and then everybody else would start building on it. Then there was a lot of competition, but that's good about yeah. invention because yeah. it brings healthy competition. And that's what she was doing. So she was exploring all these different ways of using this technology to create these films that she wanted to see. And uh, she was uh, helping it happen here in, in America. You said that she, um, she influenced Picasso. Yes. Uh, can tell me about that. Like, did they meet oh. or did he just, was he into her, her films or what? Pablo Picasso and his friend Brock went to the Paris exhibition in 1900. That was huge for technology. They had escalator, they had the balloon, they had the first Ferris wheel out there, they had electric lights coming out there. Oh, and right. Alice was speaking about filmmaking. And they were watching these films and they were colorized and they were just had different screens and they, they were able to see it in different uh, positions and everything. And that's how uh, they were influenced to create the cubism movement. Okay. And, and that using film, the different aspects of it and seeing it from different perspectives and from all these different, they were able to put it on, on two dimensional, what she was doing. They were seeing two dimensional, but they're seeing three dimensional things happening. I think it's very interesting. And I think that uh, Alice kept that that relationship going for a long time. I, I There are a lot of things that we don't know about her and I'm thinking of her as someone that would influence me being a mentor for me with technology, because I went from analog and going into the digital age. I, I'm right there. And, and that's where she was. And I, I think it's, it's very exciting to, uh, to think of how she, how she brought it all together mm -hmm. and how she experimented. And, you know, she was very, very, um, uh, almost 400 films, French films. And then in, in the in coming here to the US, uh, her film body of work, the most for, for a woman filmmaker, over 350 and most of them are lost. But fortunately nice. we have people like the Fortley Film Commission. Uh, we have the Women Film Preservation Fund who found one of Alice's films in a barn in. New Hampshire. Oh my God. So, so like, so, that was my next question. Like if we wanted to see the cabbage fairy, can we see yes, it or yes, we can. you can see it online. Okay. Every, a lot of the stuff is online. A lot of it has been the work, the hard work of Alison McMahon who wrote the book, the lost visionary and speaks French and translate a lot of things and, and went to France and made copies of letters and everything before, uh, it burnt down the place oh. where she kept some of her uh, archives were burnt. She has the only copy of it. Uh, Marquise Lepage uh, did the Lost Garden, the documentary. She's from Canada. And that documentary influenced Pamela Green. So everybody's taking this story 
to the goal line right now. Mm -hmm. I'm working on Film Town, which was born in Orvieto at yes. your workshop. Uh, it's, um, I'm reworking that to make it a series. And uh, Alice uh, Guy is the center role. She's the protagonist. So of her films that are, that, that you know about or that have been saved or whatever, um, I was reading about one, A Fool and His Money. What can you tell me about that? Well, she already at that time had her studio built in Fort Lee. Now that's a question, that's a mystery. Here in 1910, she was written in the US census, she was as a housewife. Hmm. So in, 19, in 1912, this $100,000 studio was built, or she's owned and operated it, and she's making these movies. It's, a, it's an interesting little side story. I don't know for sure, but what she has done, she's made her, her company very inclusive. Absolutely. She had a way of bringing people, the best people together, or she couldn't comprehend the, the Jim Crow laws that were going on in this country at the time. Coming from France, it's, it was different there. They, oh, they yes. were open. Um, the sex and the uh, and the art and uh, the music, everything was is open and everybody was equal. So I think she brought that along with her and she hired an entire all black cast for a fool and his money. And other than the times where other filmmakers would hire people and they would use blackface. So she just had this uh, really openness. And, well, and I, I know that D.W. Griffith kind of was a rival or competitor of her. So do you know if there was any pushback? Of, of, you know, it was a, an all black film seen as a, you know, oh my gosh, or, or did people embrace it or did no one even notice it or? There, there was, um, he was a rival and a competitor, but that was after she trained him. Uh, oh, oh. Because um, he was called Larry, was his nickname, Larry. his real name, Larry Griffith. And he was a 30 year old stage performer. 30, okay, ah. all right. He started getting into the films. Now, she had years, years of understanding technology of how to shoot film, lighting, blocking, perception, depth of field, everything. She trained him along with other women who were the ones that were the, the directors, uh, the script writers, the scout locations. They trained him. He picked it up really well. Great. Mm. You know, he was able to do it, but he did not invent these things, which I think is something that the history books yes. just, just don't get into the, how is that possible for somebody to pick up all this stuff in like six months or a year and make right. all these movies? His father was a Confederate um, colonel. And he was really into that whole idea of making a movie about the Civil War veterans. He was in that whole different bracket. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would have been like, oh, now that I'm successful, let me like think and give props to my teacher, who is this amazing lady. Like, 
and doesn't that, strike me as the kind of thing people... one lady there were many others that were able to were, were teaching him you know it was always something and then he he kind of goes off and no of course not he's he's not going to say anything about that he was not very good at taking orders from a woman which at the mm-hmm. time most men did not either because women yes. didn't have the right to vote oh yes there's that well it seems like if she was you know she, as a it was pioneering to have that focus on naturalism and just sort of stop being all stagey and be just be yourself and you know kind of what you were saying being off the cuff and um it reminds me i, I almost feel like there's a line to from her to maya darren you know in the what 30s 40s like her experimental films just sort of like hey i'm gonna take this camera and do some interesting stuff and like there's this back channel of women influencing each other and passing down what they learn. I think the studios kind of took that over. I think yeah. you're right. In the earlier times, there was more of the the interplay, the exchange of ideas, the, the being able to trust. And as Al, what Alice did, she would have a group come together and they would all throw in their ideas. It would be kind of a, a writer's room. And, and she really embraced the ideas and everyone to participate. She let mm-hmm. everyone go in. And I think that changed so much when it went to Hollywood and you had that structure, the top-down structure, where you had the one person that's in control and tells everybody else what to do. Well, and once they realize there's money to be made, right? Oh, it's of like, course. It's like oh, when it's a fun oh. art thing, that's just sort of like, sure, you do your thing. But as soon as there's money to be made... Oh, that was it. And that's where the corporates came in, the corporate yeah. raiders. And that was in 1915, 1913, 14. Uh, the Europeans suffered, the European film uh, business suffered because of the war and also the coal shortages and everything. So there you had the move out of New Jersey uh, going into uh, California, into Hollywood. But Universal started in, in Fort Lee, uh, Universal East was there and uh, Yuri and I actually found uh, the champion, the studio that was still there. I, I did a little, you know, video on, we found it, here it is, this wow. is where it all began. And uh, they're amazing. The Fort Lee Film Commission is really amazing when it comes to early cinema history, which is, it is totally Americana. This is epic mm. Americana. This is where the business started. And it's it's like jazz, where <laughs> jazz started in New Orleans. Uh, before there was Hollywood, there was Fort Lee. Yes. And everyone was employed by all the students. They had they had like 11, 12 studios. All oh, my God. So, so what happened with Edison? Ah, Edison. Edison is... Uh, a very complex character and uh, everyone knows him as one thing and there's so many many different uh, com- levels of, of what he's all about when i bring him in in 1910 of course he's he's controlling a lot of the patents mm-hmm. uh, not that uh, he owned the patents because he had uh, the muckers uh, creating like crazy. And he, he, it was really great. And he knew how to 
get them out to the audiences and get them out to the market. So that was his forte, really. He knew how to make money on that. His first movie, Frankenstein 1910, went worldwide and he made a lot of money. So distribution became the big thing uh, to do. There. But still he, is. Yes, it still <laughs> is. Exactly. But he had a very harsh uh, outlook towards the uh, independents uh, because they weren't paying him fees for all of his uh, d- different um, patents. So there's always this war going on and they would have the detectives coming after them, everything. That's why they escaped to New Jersey. They kind of had hide out from him. It was very intriguing what he was doing. He created a, a movie trust strong arm everyone to belong to this trust so they all pay toward into this Uh, but that just sort of fell apart so in his name he had a lot of work done a lot of the news clips of things that are happening and it's all thomas a edison he strikes me as a really mercenary kind of brutal guy he could have been but and and that he would send people he would send these detectives in to like you know, break stuff up if, you know. I'm looking into it a lot more now because there's over 5 million pieces of information in the archives, in the Edison archives. And there's a book now, an author went through all of those archives. So you, you see that he had a difficult time in business because it was so cutthroat. I don't want to blame him for a lot of stuff, but yes, he was mean in a way that he wanted to, everyone to pay him yeah. fees. Well, because that was my understanding was somehow his involvement and his their refusal to pay him was what made the industry go to Hollywood because they were trying to get away from him so they could do stuff without having to pay into his deal. That's one of the reasons. I'm yeah. sure that's absolutely one of the reasons. But there's a lot of other things. So the economics weren't there, the, the coal strikes, uh, the cold winters, you know, and you had the nice, uh, the, the nice uh, atmosphere and, and the weather. Yeah, Christina, it's real nice out here in L.A. I don't know what you're doing there. <laughs> it's pretty windy over here. We have the lake effect. And <laughs> oh. So tell me about Jules Brulatour and how he factors into her life. Ah, the mysterious Jules. He's, uh, I did a lot of research into his character, and I usually would come up with only one sentence and, and whatever. Very little is known about him other than wow. he, he was from New Orleans. Uh, he was also, uh, his background, he had a great-grandfather who was uh, a, a wine merchant from France. Handy. So there, there's a lot of this... Um, business going he was successful in business but because of that uh, down in New Orleans and with the Jim Crow they would all attack uh, people who are mixed race he made his way to Chicago and worked for an Edison company and I think something really happened he got screwed a few times so he decided to uh, really go out on his own and he went to uh, Fort Lee New Jersey in New York City as well there was a lot of uh, filmmaking going on a lot of business deals going on Uh, he got into the real estate of Fort Lee he saw that as the gold mine and he did really really well now uh, he was partners with Carl Lemley Oh, uh, yes. That's a that's name we know. 
Yes, and that's where they built the first Universal there. Then going out west, he did go out west. And I think he did something. He was like a Hearst. He got into the media because wow. he found that media, whoever controls the media, controls the way people would think about things, you know. So yeah. that's where he was. And he, he went back to New Orleans and lived in his mansion, which is still there. The Brulator mansion is still there. There's wow. a lot of very interesting things. But, but what was his involvement with, with Alice? She didn't know any. She didn't know Fort Lee. She was in uh, in Long Island, and then when her lab blew up another time, it might have been vandalism. It might have been free chemistry. Uh, that's when she decided to uh, to to go to Fort Lee, and uh, they could get together, and they would be able to be independents against the establishment, which was Edison, who mm-hmm. was backed by J.P. Morgan. You know, so. Uh-huh. And Firestone, and of course, Henry Ford, they were all friends, and they were all into that establishment group, the Gilded Age. Meanwhile, uh, you have these other people that kind of get together and work things out. Because she never married, right? Yes, she did. Oh, she did. Yes, she married. Oh, that's right. You said she was a housewife or in the census. Right. She married Herbert Blaget, whose mother was a stage actress and whose father was a French. Oh, he was like that grenadier. It was one of those, um, think of far from a madding crowd. And he was Frank, uh, the, the soldier that goes off and leaves yeah. them. And he was a camera operator that was hired for Alice to go out and show what she can do with movie making in Europe. Uh. It was in France and in Spain, and that's where they fell in love, uh, I think, or other things happened. But they got married. Now, he's eight years younger than her. Oh, girl. Yes. So he's has his own idea of what he wants to do. He's a rival and a competitor as well. Uh, They did have two children uh, who were always on the set. And uh, there was Simone and Reginald. And after she did catch the Spanish flu, she Ooh. got the virus, so she was very sick. Her three members of her, of her um, stage, her crew died from it. Wow. And he, uh, but, that, but, but then Herbert left her for Bessie Love, I think. Okay, so, so that's... He went, yeah, he yeah. went to Hollywood. He wanted to be a renowned director. He had starlets going on. Uh, so there was all, and, and he left her. Oh. Well, then, so what happened to her? Where, how did she end up? Well, after she went to Canada to recoup from the, the flu, and then she, she went to Hollywood because Herbert said he would take care of her. So oh, wow. he, had her, he put her in a bungalow <laughs> with the kids. I don't know where he was, uh, but uh, she, uh, she became his assistant director. She directed a few, a few films that I don't think she just did because you know what that's what she did and she took the job yeah but by that time things got really bad in um, Fort Lee she lost the studio everything went to auction so how how did, how did she lose the studio she, what how, well, how did that happen? he made he made a lot of bad business deals and they were calling in the loans and uh, when she was sick 
there's so many different business deals that could go bad. Yes. Eventually she did see everything, her house and her studio, everything be auctioned off. Oh God. And she went back to France. So she went back. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There's so many elements of, of her life and the story that feel very modern. You yes. Know, just surviving the pandemic, yeah. uh, being a pioneer in her field, uh, standing up for representation and, Absolutely. you know, doing, expressing her own art, artistic voice, no matter what people the said. The suffragists were coming to her, you know, and, and a lot of wow. their stories were very socially you know, just telling what is going on out there. So uh, she... Did she did she do some collaborations with some suffragists? Some of those stories? I believe she did. That's amazing. Actually, just a couple episodes ago, I had some experts in, in the suffragist movement here that came on and talked about some of those documentaries and some of the figures oh, there. So, Alice Paul. Like, ah, <laughs> yes. Alice Paul is from New Jersey. Oh, yes. There's a whole group that I went and met with because we worked with the uh, New Jersey Teachers Association to try to get this into the history programs of the schools in New Jersey because it, it just tells the whole amazing yeah. story of, of women pioneers and going into new new ventures. And it's exciting to see the young girls, you know, really young girls in early middle school and high school and their eyes, you know, light up and yeah. saying, wow, you know, uh, that's what I want to do. So yeah. it's great. I think so, that's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that finding characters that we, you know, from the past that show us the way. Tell me, you were talking earlier about, um, meeting the director of Be Natural and how she got started on her rabbit hole. Uh, it was at the Garden State Arts, uh, the Garden State Film Festival. Uh, they would have us, uh, Fort Lee Film Commission, I would be the moderator, we would do a symposium on Alice. And at that time, that year, we did have a documentary called The Lost Garden and that was Marquise Lepage. And I think a lot of people were saying, who, who? Who is this person? You know, how, how come we don't know this? I think she was one of them and she was on a call with Fort Lee Film uh, Commission. I was on the call with her. She was so excited about it, getting things done. But I know how hard it was almost 10 years to get it made. That's Well, I love that. That's, you know, a lot of what you're saying about how she worked anyway is it is team effort, you know, just bringing people in, being inclusive and and like that more of a collaboration instead of, you know, a dictator in charge of the story, but like, let's collaborate and put our artistic inspirations together and see what happens. She lectured at Columbia University oh. and said that uh, being a director is the perfect position for a woman to be in. Because they just know how to handle it, how to make the changes, how to get people together, listening to other one. And, and that's what she said. It was the most perfect position for a woman to be in. And this is 1917. Isn't that wonderful? Because I feel like the, the job of director is looked at so differently now. It's like, oh, you've got to be an auteur. You've got to like be in control. You've got to have a singular voice. It's like not spoken of in that way of being like a team leader. So you've been cel celebrating Alice's birthday for over what, over 10 years? Close to 10 years. Tell me oh, about yes. that. Well, that was one of the first dates 
that uh, Yuri and I were on, I said, we have to find this grave of this woman director, the first woman film director. And he came with me and actually we, he found, uh, he found the grave marker before I did. And uh, we've been going on July 1st, which is Alice's birthday. I started coordinating a, a birthday celebration of Fort Lee Film Commission. People would all come out and New York Women in Film uh, from the from the fund, we would just go out there, celebrate, have have a, a bottle of champagne there, and we were able to get finally a marker worth worthy of the first woman film director because it has the logo of her studio. Oh. Alice Guiblachet, uh, first woman film director and studio owner. Uh, we raised the money through near through uh, the New Jersey uh, Teachers Association. And they just uh, said, you know what, this is this is something that's really worthwhile. So yeah, uh, that's July 1st. Her, her death was March 25th or 26th, one of the other ones, which is when I was looking for it at the time. I said, it's better to celebrate her birthday. Yeah. So <laughs> but that was, uh, I, I think a lot of people go looking for it now and you're able to, to find it. It's at the Mary, Mary Rest Cemetery in Mawa, New Jersey. And that's where she lived to be 95 years old. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. So even though she went back to France, she, she came, came back. back. She came back because her daughter was a diplomat worked as a diplomat in Europe and then wow. came out here and then Alice came back to uh, to the United States to look for her films because uh, she found that she was missing in the history books she's not being even mentioned uh, Gaumont mentions her as his secretary and uh, so she's she wrote her memoirs but her memoirs are very kind uh, and they're very very nostalgic and, and very, very nice in, in many ways. Uh, she says some of the things, but she doesn't give you down to, to I'm sure yeah. what she had gone through. Uh, she's had to be a tough cookie to go through all the, uh, but there was a lot of competition and jealousies going on. Yeah. But then her, her daughter moved here also, uh, retired in, in Mawa and she came to live with her and she lived with her until her, until she passed away. Wow, I wonder what that felt like for her to be coming back to this place that you did this incredible thing that no one credits you for. I think she was, I think she came back and, and was a teacher. I, I think she just loved to show people what's the, what the possibilities are. What a great I mean, she had this vision and, and she has this just wonderful way of expressing it. And, and she had a way of living it. And that's where I'm exploring how she would be living it as a person that I would know, that I would go to as a mentor and, and say, Alice, how, how would you do this? Because sometimes they ask me about well, something's going on. I hit a brick wall. And it's like, what would Alice do? <laughs> what a great and inspiring figure she is. You sort of casually dropped out oh, because her lab got blown up. <laughs> in in Long Island, like wait, what? It was a very very dangerous, uh, chemically uh, oriented uh, business at right, the labs. Right. 
these the films were so volatile uh, that, that they would just explode and, and many times that would happen and, and oh, you God. have people like running out saving films or the, the mostly women were in the editing uh, department and every and they're just carrying stuff out um, I say, okay, well, it's time to rebuild. You know, let's move on. Let's go to a better place. We don't think of filmmaking as being a life or death, you know, <laughs> proposition for a job. My God, unless you're a stuntman, but even then. Well, yeah, that's that's another that's another road completely. She was very bold with that. Uh, she hired a lot of uh, risk takers, uh, mm. people who were in the business that would be in in the circus, circus oh. performers, uh, because they were able to perform these stunts and she would bring them to New Jersey and hire them to do these uh, risky stunts that they did on their own. Um, she had a, a, a boat blown up in Pelham oh Bay uh, for the effect. Uh, unfortunately, her husband was on the boat, uh, but he got off before <laughs> it blew up. <laughs> I don't know. I'm making that up. Oh my God. <laughs> that's well, that's amazing. I'm sure there's, and I'm sure there were no permits and no insurance. None. <laughs> none. And she had a tiger on the set. They would make these movies and she's playing with this tiger. Uh, it, there, there's so many things that you say, oh my God, can you believe it? But as a producer at the time saying, go ahead. <laughs> go oh ahead my God. It. <laughs> more what? And more, what happened see at the time in the 1900s when all this technology started coming out and all this entertainment started coming out it whetted the appetites of the people of the public because before then they didn't have anything like this this was the start of the entertainment industry yes. as well and the more they they got this out the more people demanded they would have you know two three minute reels they'd have 10 minute reels well then they had to have double reels and then have longer longer movies because that's what people were coming and pay paying for so so they all had to get bolder with their special effects or their risks taking these cars driving or going off the cliff or hanging over the cliff the cliffhanger where do you think that came from the palisades uh, so that's <laughs> oh tell me i remember you told me about this a long time ago tell me tell that what what's is there a specific film that that comes from well the palisade cliffs were and they're still there. They're right across the Hudson River from Manhattan. On the cliffs, cliffs tend not to go anywhere, so I'm right, glad they're still there. Right. But these people, well, sometimes they take them down. I, know, I mean, I don't know how many how many mountaintops have been taken down around here, and we and we see houses on top of these places that used to be beautiful mountaintops. But the Palisades are magnificent. And then the Fort Lee was really a fort during the revolutionary times. And so they were very hidden and they were very accessible. They had a ferry that went across from Manhattan to the Palisades. And that's where they would hang off these clips for these movies. I mean, they're like straight down and people are hanging over them and they have the cameras and they're shooting all this. And, and yes, that's a cliffhanger. That's amazing. It's like we don't think it. We think don't even think about words like that anymore. You just use it without thinking about that it has an origin and it has an origin, and it has an origin in film, which is you know so so fun. What is there anything else that you feel like people should know about Alice? Well, I love that she's called a visionary and a dreamer. 
I call her a dreamer. She sees things in, in, in big ways. She sees in every small thing, a big story. She was able to just trigger the imagination of people when they would watch these things and they would, and she would make them laugh and she would change the whole story around of what people were going through their life and their bosses and this and that. Well, she changed that story around. Now you're the boss and you tell this guy what to do. So she was able to transcend what everyday life was, could have been a drudgery for most people and kind of give them an ability to laugh at themselves and also uh, cry at some sometimes uh, some of the really uh, hard things that come out. She was able to evoke a lot of their their emotions and and let other people uh, say, hey, you know what, I I can dream also. And she never stopped learning, and she never stopped teaching, and and she never stopped being able to. Um, share everything that that she saw. I did fall into the rabbit's hole. It's an Alice in Wonderland rabbit's hole. I, I don't think I'll ever get out of it. I hope, you know, people really appreciate what she's done and get to know her more. And I think it's time to, to yeah. really get her out there so everybody could share in this. Yeah, well, and I know that some of her films are preserved at the American Film Institute and hopefully available online to see now I want to go look up the cabbage fairy just because <laughs> I, I feel like I've seen pieces of it like it sounds so familiar when you talk about it I'm just blown away by the obstacles you know that she kept going you know that that it wasn't a casual sit at your laptop and make a film it was a go out deal with these chemicals deal with explosions deal with rivals you know people breaking up your business going broke you know, just there was so much more than we have to deal with now as filmmakers. And it's just that, you know, she persisted. It, the challenge is always there. And you know that yeah. as well as I do. We know it's getting better, but the glass, well, the celluloid ceiling was, was very much intact. It was hard, but what are the alternatives? You could quit. Yeah. Right? You could always quit, get a job as a secretary. I was going to say, you could either be I a... should have done. I would have been be... a CEO of the company by now. You could have been a secretary, a nun, or a housewife. <laughs> well, and, and there's also this history, the activism in women's film history from her. Yes. She understood what the, she had a hard time. She, you know, her father died when she was young. She had two sisters in the convent as well. She was, uh, she had to make a decision on how to live independently, and she was, and she was taking care of her mother, and and this just, I think it just, um, that's Kitty. My cat. yes, <laughs> and then she decided uh, to get into the technology aspect, she had to be really precise to know not only the secretarial, the typing at the time was not very easy. The stenography, uh, office work and everything. And, and her boss said, well, you could do the film thing as long as your other work does not uh, is not compromised. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was juggling everything. And we know how that is because we do that 
all the time. Women do that, um, men do that too, but uh, there's certain individuals that are more capable of, of doing that uh, multitasking in a way uh, that they that propels them forward and, and she just propelled forward. She knew everything. I mean, people, cameramen were coming to her to learn special effects techniques, oh uh, the dissolves, uh, the, the, the masking of the do, the reversals. The, uh, she, was, she was doing all of that. She was, and she was teaching them how to do that too because she, most people, not most people, some people, do not like to share because then they feel that they're not going to be wanted or they're they're going to be a dispensable. Well, everyone's dispensable. Mm. Everybody can learn something. But because she shared things and she got people to go, do better, she was able to appreciate that and ex- access it, you know, and then have somebody doing that really well so she could do the other things well. Yeah. Uh, does the writing well and the directing well, you know. And at the time, they really didn't have the different uh, director, camera operator. It was one and the same. She separated that. Oh, wow. The camera guy really focusing on the camera work and not the directorial stuff. So she was doing the directing of it. Interesting. You know, she was was a team player. I love that. What what a worthy uh, role model for today. Uh, yes, yes, for for everyone. Yeah, and so you worked on a version of an early version of this when I met you at our writers' workshop in Orvieto. Filmtown is born in Orvieto, and Filmtown, I am, uh, I have a pilot. Good. Then I, I, I think television is is best for this because. Oh God, I could so see it. I mean, you mentioned the Queen's Gambit, like I just right in line with that. You can't do it in two hours. No. That's the whole thing. So it was so wonderful doing this in Orvieto. And and the way you had that workshop set up, that really started my uh, journey of of film town. But I didn't even know. I remember you asked, who's the protagonist? I was saying, wait a minute. Okay, how many do I have? Right. Uh, Well, I think focusing in on her is brilliant. Yes. So that's right the story now, I most want to hear. That's where we are. Uh, so it, it went through a lot of permutations. One thing that is really good, what happened with the quarantining and the staying at home, we stayed at home and I've just been working on this and uh, it's ready. I, I really good. ready. It's ready for takeoff. Well, I'm excited to see it. And then I'm excited when someday we are able to travel again that you and Yuri will come with us to Orvieto for another writing workshop and work oh, on- we will. Oh, that's going to be great. I would love to. It was an, ex- an experience that we, we just still talk about so much because not only the workshop, but the people, and we still connect with everybody else that's out there. Liz, you know, Ali, are you guys saved us? And uh, just uh, would love to uh, get together again. Definitely. Liz, Liz and Allie have both moved here because of the workshop and ended up being roommates here. And Liz has subsequently won two Emmys. So, you know, I'd like to take responsibility, but I can't. But, you know, she's done all right. That's excellent. I'm no, so congratulations. Proud. That is because that you absolutely were a part of that coming into that and listening to how they were working and 
it was just a perfect time. Perfect yeah. time. You guys are wonderful with that. Well, oh, thank you. Well, we will do it again as soon as as soon as the restrictions are lifted and there's a vaccine and it's safe to travel. We're gonna run at least one, if not two, workshops in Italy because now everyone is like, when is the next one? We're all dying to go. Uh, but in the meantime, we have converted that curriculum to an on to online classes. So our next round of those is starting in January. It's called Concept to Pages, and it's similar. It's based on the curriculum that you took mm -hmm. part in. So it's it's really so you know that's going well. Really well. I'll, I'll have to bring another show there. Then. Yes, you will. <laughs> yeah, I could see you every week. On I could see you every Saturday morning right here on Zoom. Well, Christina, thank you so much for for oh. joining me tonight and sharing sharing about Alice. I just think Thank I want to Thank you for inviting me. Really, I appreciate it very much. It's real yeah. I, I could talk about Alice. I know. Well, <laughs> you know, I think more people should be talking about Alice and hopefully with the natural documentary and the garden documentary, your TV show that's coming that's coming and hopefully more and more people will start talking and learning about Alice who's, you know, really a foremother of the film industry as we know it. It's about time next time on Hearthside Salons. For indie filmmakers, nothing is more heartbreaking than pouring your soul into a film that no one sees. Producer Lindsay Lanzidotta has worked on films that made it into Sundance, garnered film independent noms, and opened South by Southwest. She knows how much work it takes. Now she's working on a new avenue to help filmmakers reach audiences. We'll talk about indie film producing and cracking the distribution nut. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well. <laughs>